Hi, welcome to New Books and Politics. I'm your host, Jeff Bloodworth. Here's a fun historical fact for you. In 1932, the 1932 presidential election, Franklin Roosevelt won 98% of the vote in the state of South Carolina. The Republican Herbert Hoover won the remaining 2%. In the 2012 election, well, I don't think Mitt Romney will win 98% of the vote in South Carolina, but I think we all understand that things have definitely changed in how not just how South Carolina votes, but how the rest of the South um, also votes. Um, in political history and political science, this is called realignment. And the big question is, why and how did the American South move from being the solidly Democratic South to what is now the solidly Republican South? For decades, historians and political scientists have uh, essentially had a very simple narrative um, in how they explain this, and they say it's simply race. Well, Joseph Crespino, a professor of history at Emory University, has written what is really a fine and and first-rate biography of Strom Thurmond. It's called Strom Thurmond's America. And in it, Crespino uh, talks about, uses Thurmond, to talk about how not only South Carolina, but how the rest of the South um, realigned. And and what Crispino does is, of course, he talks about Thurman's bigotry. But he also talks about, also makes a, a larger claim that realignment of the South was a lot more complicated than pure and simple race. Um, I had a really nice conversation with Professor Crispino, and Strom Thurmond's America is, is a really fine and first-rate political biography. It's readable, it's accessible, and I think it makes some really important arguments, and, uh, and I think it goes a long way in helping us have a more complicated understanding of modern American politics. I, I hope you uh, enjoy our conversation. On today's show on uh, New Books in History, we're going to have uh, Joseph Crispino, and we're going to be talking about um, his fine new book, Strom Thurmond's America. Uh, Joe, what, you know, you, we usually start by asking the author just to tell us a bit about yourself, biography, education background, you know, educational background, that sort of thing. Sure, sure. Um, I got my PhD at Stanford in 2002, and before that, I was an undergrad at um, Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Um, uh, in between uh, undergrad and grad school, I was uh, I taught for two years in the Mississippi Teacher Corps, which is a program uh, where they put uh, teachers with liberal arts degrees in under-resourced school districts in the Mississippi Delta. And so I taught in Indianola, Mississippi, at oh. Gentry High School oh, yeah, for two yeah. years. That's B.B. Um, King's hometown, isn't it? That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, and he, yeah, yeah. he would come back and do a homecoming concert every, oh, really? every spring, early summer. Yeah, he was really loyal to Indianola. And um, so, yeah, I did that for two years and then went out to grad school at Stanford and uh, was on a postdoc for a year at George Mason University uh, in Fairfax, Virginia, and then got a job here at Emory, and I've been here ever since. So this is my ninth year uh, in the profession. Huh. Um, I mean, you and I, you know this, but the listeners don't. Um, my family, we have a connection. My family is from Mississippi. I think we're essentially the same part of the state, northwest Mississippi. Is that where your your family's from? 
Yeah, my family's from uh, Macon, Mississippi, Knoxville mm-hmm. County, so a little bit uh, further south, kind of east-central Mississippi, Yeah, over in between Columbus and Meridian. Oh, Columbus. Yeah, my grandmother went to Mississippi University for Women. I guess yeah. uh, Columbus would be the – I think there's an Air Force base there, Naval Base. That's right. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. Um, and – uh, we almost shared the same experience. I almost did the Mississippi Teacher Corps. Uh, to, oh, that's great. Yeah, um, but th- this does actually lead into one of my qu- my first question. I- I'm just curious. Maybe it has uh, no no uh, connection whatsoever. Whatsoever, but you know, how do, how does your southerness shape your approach? I know you you do the you know southern history. And so mm-hmm. how does do you think your how do you think your southerness um, shapes your you know your approach to southern history more specifically? Uh, your biography on Strom Thurmond? Um, well, I grew up uh, in a small town, Bacon, Mississippi, is about 2,500 people. My, uh, my parents had lived uh, in different places, where my mother's family is from since before the Civil War. Um, and my parents had lived in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and New York City, and they moved back to Mississippi and um, and my father started a business there. My father had been a professional football player, so he needed to find something to do after his playing days were oh. over. And so he moved back to this small town where my mother's family had been from, and he started the cable television business hmm. uh, in the local area. And uh, this was in 1969, 1970. It was a time when uh, public schools in small towns across the South were going through great tumult over desegregation, and there was a private academy that was founded in my hometown, like many private, like small uh, southern towns, uh, where, where all the white kids went and all the black kids went to the, the, the public school once they were allowed to go to the traditionally white public school. And, um, and so I grew up in a town in the 1970s uh, and early 80s in which the legacies of, of racial segregation were still very real, um, where there was... Uh, a lot of kind of racial tension in the air, and you kind of could, could feel it even as a young kid, you know, like when you'd have, when black friends of mine would come over and play pickup basketball in my driveway, mm. the neighbors would complain to my mother and things like that. And so, um, you know, I always felt like, uh, you know, uh, you, kind of, you would kind of learn different things as you come of age about the history of the civil rights movement and the history of segregation. And they were all things that I could relate to, uh, or I could see, still see evidence of. I went to a doctor's you know, office. My, the general practitioner, you know, his office was still segregated racially into the 80s, you know, things <laughs> like this. And so, um, and so I was always fascinated by that and uh, wanted to learn more about it. And eventually I went to, um, I left Mississippi when I was 14. I went to a boarding school in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then went on to undergraduate mm. in Chicago. And I got involved in a in a, um, a community organizing project on the near west side of Chicago uh, as an undergraduate. And there, uh, it was in the Henry Horner homes. Mm, they don't yeah, exist yeah. anymore, but yeah. um, they tore them down. But um, at the time, I would meet residents there. And so many of the residents were, they would find out I'm from Mississippi and they'd say, oh, I've got, you know, people in Winona or my folks are from Greenwood. And uh, they were all part of that historic migration of African-Americans from Mississippi in the south to the to the north. And um, and that's what, you know, that was a revelation to me as well, you know, because I've always felt 
growing up that I was from this very peculiar, <laughs> unique place. And then you go to a city like Chicago, which is the biggest, you know, one of the most segregated big cities in all the country, in all the United States. And so, I, you know, it's, it was it should have been obvious to me, but it wasn't. Uh, but uh, it became obvious how all of these things were of a piece. And uh, I wanted to – so I ended up going back to Mississippi working in the Delta, but I wanted to uh, write and research more about Southern history and, and racial politics and civil rights history in modern America. And so that's what I did in my first book, which is a book about Mississippi – um, a book about white resistance to civil rights in Mississippi and trying to tell that story not as a kind of just or not simply as a story about rabid white resistance in, the, in Mississippi that was part of a closed society set apart from a broader liberal America, but rather as to try to understand white Mississippians as they understood themselves, which was that they were part of this, uh, they were at the forefront. Mm-hmm. Of this reaction of conservative Americans against these liberal social changes uh, of the 1960s, and how they they tried to make common cause with other conservative groups and conservative issues uh, to kind of forge a uh, this this um, conservative counter movement uh, from the in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and that, so trying to take the story of of, of of resistance in Mississippi and put it in a broader national. Uh, history of conservative politics since the 1960s. And so what I did in that book was to take something, take a state that we always think of as being outside the normal experience on, yeah. the, on the edge. Mississippi yeah. was the most, was widely considered, and it was, the yeah. most reactionary uh, uh, southern state and resistant southern state. Mm-hmm. And I tried to take what was on the edges and move it to the center and see how the South and the nation look differently. In some ways, I, it's, it's the same thing I'm doing in this Strong Thurman book. Yeah. Is I'm taking a figure who's, fig, who's always thought of as quintessentially Southern, mm-hmm. right? Um, one of the last of the Jim Crow demagogues, uh, Strong Thurman was, and, and then try to, under, try to fit him into uh, a national context and understand how he figures into... Um, conservative politics in the second half of the 20th century. And I think he's oftentimes, uh, by the people who write that, oftentimes left out for a variety of reasons. For, for, uh, for conservatives themselves who tell their own histories, uh, Thurman is kind of the, you know, the crazy uncle you want to kind of keep in the attic of mm-hmm. the modern conservative revolution. Yeah. Um, and for scholars who have been writing about conservatism over the last decade and a half or more, um, I think we tend to make kind of facile distinctions between kind of principled conservatives, intellectuals, sunbelt conservatives, and those crazy racist Southerners. Hmm. And I'm trying in this book to complicate both notions, you know, to say that Thurman wasn't, you can't just dismiss him as a crazy uncle, that he was, that he was, um, uh, there all along, and he was working in important ways on important issues that would become vital to uh, the politics of the right uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and um, and that we can't just dismiss him as as merely as one of the last of the Jim Crow demagogues. That we need to properly understand him is also at the same time one of the first of the Sun Belt conservatives. And he didn't start off as one and gradually morph into the other as he mm-hmm. shed his racist regional heritage. 
from the from you know roughly 1948 to sometime in the 1970s, he was both at the same time one of the last of the Jim Crow demagogues and one of the first of the Sunbelt conservatives. And and historians don't have a good way of thinking about that how that could be. It's a, it's a paradox that we need to understand, and it forces us to think more about both groups and about uh, how southern, white Southern conservatives fit into national conservative politics. Yeah, I think you did a really really fine job with that. I, I, that's something I didn't know about Strom Thurmond, about how, and I, do, I have that dichotomy in my class when I teach. And I'm like, right. okay, the, here's Barry Goldwater. You know, this, this is, you know, somehow the, the Sunbelt conservative who's the good guy, though he opposed right. the civil rights legislation. And then on the other hand, we have someone like a Strom Thurmond. And I, you know, you, you know, this is my area of expertise is 20th century U.S. political history. I thought I knew something about this. <laughs> and so it was great yeah. to read to read something and learn something entirely new. I mean, could you just tell us what, what is the difference? I mean, what do we think of it as the difference between a Southern conservative and a Sunbelt conservative? Could you, could you just talk about that? Because I think that's an important yeah. distinction. Well, let's take those two figures you were just talking about, Goldwater. And it's, um, I, think, I think what I try to do is, is just complicate that story. and complicate, who, who are these men and what's their relationship like? Well, Goldwater, we know, had been a member of the NAACP mm-hmm. in Phoenix when they were desegregating their schools. And, he, and people, you know, the, when he ran in the South, the Democrat, the segregation of the Democrats used to use that against him, yeah. right? Um, but there, but there, I found a number of, of really interesting things too about about Goldwater. Well, you know, uh, in his papers there in Arizona, you know, when he was, uh, for example, when he was uh, leading the Senate reelection campaign committee in, in 1962, you know, that was a big year to try to push um, Southern Republicans and try to get some Southern Republicans elected in the Southern states. And Goldwater. It, as he emerges, you know, he's reelected in 58, right? Mm-hmm. And he emerges there as kind of the darling of kind of business interests and who are, who are fighting labor unions. And he's part of this, you know, hard anti-union right that's trying to assert itself in the Republican Party. And Thurman's working, you know, in lockstep with him on those efforts. I mean, he's not in the Republican Party at that point, but he's on the Labor and Public Welfare Committee with Goldwater in 1957 and 58 when they're trying to fight uh, unions and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, the, the labor reform bill, trying, trying to fight that in the late 50s. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's, it's in those efforts that Thurman and, and Goldwater developed their, their close friendship. In fact, in 1957, when Strom Thurman led his... Uh, record filibuster 24 hours and 18 minutes the only person who gave him any break at all in the middle of the night when he was like deep in the uh, nighttime hours two or three in the morning barry goldwater came and introduced some measures on the floor so that so that uh, for about 40 minutes so that thurman could steal away for his only bathroom break none of the other southerners would have helped thurman at that point because thurman's filibuster was to them a great insult it made them look like they were abandoning the cause and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and giving up the fight I guess the 57 Civil Rights Bill. But Goldwater and Thurman develop a relationship around kind of anti-union politics and also hardline anti-communist politics. They're two of the biggest hawks in the Senate in the late 50s and early 60s. They they get together, work closely on allegations about muzzling in the military by mm-hmm. the Kennedy Department, the Kennedy State and Defense Department in the early 60s. And then you look at the issue of civil rights. Uh, and we remember that Goldwater had formerly been a member of the NAACP, 
And there are people like in South Carolina, a guy like Bill Workman, who was running for the Senate as a Republican, first serious candidate for uh, on a Republican ticket since Reconstruction. He wins 40% of the vote against the, the Democrat, Olin Johnson, um, in the 1962 uh, Senate race in South Carolina. And Workman, Goldwater comes into the South Carolina and stumps for Workman. Workman positively reviews um, uh, conscience of, of a conservative, and he, he emphasizes the, the chapters there on states' rights and on civil rights. And he says, this is, you know, this is a guy who really understands us and knows what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and Goldwater is very cagey on civil rights and states' rights throughout the early 60s when he's trying to build a national constituency that's going to allow him, give him a path to winning the nomination and to running for president. And their letters with Bill Workman and, 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 uh, and Barry Goldwater, Workman asks them, says, what do I tell people? And, I said, and they tell me, you used to be a member of the NAACP. And Goldwater says, you know, it's true. I, I did join it for a while. Uh, but now the, the NAACP are, are all my, my greatest enemies. They're all in cahoots with the socialists and the labor unions and the po people who are leading us down a slippery slope to, uh, to socialism in this country. Um, and then on, and then you look at the correspondence between Goldwater and, um, and Strom Thurmond. There's a great exchange of letters I found in 1962 where, mm. um, where Goldwater sends Thurmond a, um, a copy of civil rights legislation that had been passed by the Virgin, uh, in the Virgin Islands. Mm -hmm. And you look at the measures and it's basically all of it is like a blueprint for what would eventually become the law in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. I mean, it was about regulating private business, desegregating public accommodations, um, you know, uh, racial equality in the workplace, that kind of thing. And, and Goldwater sends Thurman a copy of this legislation that had been passed and highlights different parts and like put you know, exclamation points in the margins. It's like, can you believe this stuff? Can you believe the way they're using government to enforce these things to in, invade the rights of private businesses? I mean, it's just, you know, it's crazy. This is, if we don't be careful, if we're not careful, this is what's going to be, they're going to try here. And Thurman writes to back and says, you're absolutely right. This is, it's just madness. Can you, I can't believe it either. You know, and this, this is, this is what I want people to understand. It's not that, uh, we, we just have very pat images, right? That mm -hmm. Thurman was a, was a foam at the mouth segregationist who woke up every morning thinking, how, what am I going to do today to keep black people down? Yeah. And that Barry Goldwater is a principal conservative who voted against the 64 Civil Rights Act because it violated the rights of private business. You know, and it, it, that's just, you know, it's, it's almost a parody of, mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't get at all at the complicated intersections, uh, on race and, 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 and conservative ideology that existed for both men, right? Yeah. I mean, it, and, and, and they did see eye to eye. And for, and for conservatives like Barry Goldwater, who are not from the South, people like Raymond Moley, who, you know, had been a, a New Deal Democrat yeah. and had, had left the Democratic Party and now is a, is a, a spokesman for issues on the right and conservatism throughout the 40s and 50s. Raymond Moley's book, published in the early 60s, says, you know, he says, I mean, all of these, this generation of conservatives, uh, they just feel like these issues about whether black school children and white school children in the South, uh, go to school together, like, that's just not that big a deal to them. Yeah. Compared to the serious issues about communism internationally and, and getting government out, out of the way of business and freeing up the economy. You know, all of that's what the, you know, so, so it's, it's like, 
one of the things I want to say in the book is that for for a person like Goldwater or Reagan later on, there's a kind of they were just kind of tone deaf to the to what in the South was the fact that you had a really you had a political system that was broken. You did not fundamentally have democratic governance yeah. in the Southern states until you had the civil rights movement. Yeah. And and they just were were completely tone deaf to that and didn't understand that at all. And you know, for a guy like Barry Goldwater was perfectly happy, I mean eager to work with a guy like Strom Thurmond to build a Republican Party in the South and to build it in a way that could blend their conservative ideology and use that to win over these white Southern Democrats who were who were in flight from the from the Democratic Party because of the issue of civil rights. Yeah, I thought you did a especially the the stuff on Goldwater and his um you know trying to explain away his membership in the NAACP and I thought that was like well of course he would. You know, I'd always thought of my you know, one-dimensional caricature of Goldwater as a principled conservative who, who you know, and of course he's a practicing politician. And he, he is. It, yeah, and that's right. And well, he needs to sell say, out the NAACP. Right. And I think oftentimes and when we write the histories of conservatism, and we, we forget about, you know, this distinction between the, the intellectuals and the activists and yeah. the people who are in the arena. And we think about Goldwater and Reagan as being principled conservatives. But you know they are so they are so pragmatic. They are yeah. so I mean they are they're enormously uh, uh, pragmatic uh, minded politicians who oftentimes if you look through Goldwater's papers I mean he is throwing up his hands at the at the ideologues and intellectuals who he in his mind he's contemptuous of because they've never had to even run for dog catcher before yeah, yeah. you know. And 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 yet they're talking about you know issues of principle. I mean that was the basis of Thurman's. I mean of, of Goldwater's speech right at the 1960 Republican National Convention. He's like, grow up, conservatives, right? <laughs> you tried to nominate me and I didn't get it, but grow up and support Richard Nixon and, and get and, and just get let's get with it. And and Goldwater was totally that way. But what's fascinating too about Goldwater is. You you know he was doing what he what he what he needed to do in the early 60s to put to, to get Southerners to get the support of Southerners and to try to win that nomination because he wanted to to, to uh, he had national aspirations, but after he loses the you know in 64 you know he's out of the Senate he runs again and he has to be reelected in 68 uh, for a new seat, and it's fascinating too to see the exchanges between Goldwater and Thurman at that point. When Goldwater's running for the Senate, and and uh, and Strom Thurmond is coming out in 1968 with a book, uh, his only book. It's a book kind of you know talking about his conservative ideology, and uh, Lee Edwards edited it. He says that he didn't ghostwrite it, although all the Thurmond's uh, staffers told me that Lee Edwards uh, that was the word they used that he hmm. ghostwrote it. But Lee Edwards um, wouldn't be uh, interviewed about it. He didn't want to talk to me uh, to be interviewed about the project, though he did want to review the book in the Wall Street Journal uh, hmm. and correct me when I used the term that he ghost wrote it. Hmm. But uh, anyway, so Lee Edwards edited this book for Thurman, and Thurman was trying to get Goldwater to write the foreword. And he wrote and sent him a copy of the book and said, um, would you write a foreword for, for the book? And Goldwater begged off, and uh, he said, you know, uh, there's a couple of things in there that I don't that I don't quite you know, I, I agree with. Um, so I, 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 would, I would prefer not to, you know. 
And Thurman wrote him back and said, look, Barry, if there are things that you don't agree with, let me know and I can change them because, you know, we've been together on this stuff for a long time. And if there are things that are, you think are wrong, let me know. And Goldwater wrote him back and said, oh, he said, you know, he said, no, 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 there's nothing that's wrong. It's just – and then he, and he said – he kind of hemmed and hawed and got around finally to saying it was about the Brown decision. He said, um, I understand that you disagreed with the Brown decision. Um, uh, but um, but you know I I I you know I have he tried to carve out this different position mm-hmm. on Brown, but if you if you look if you read what Thurman's book says about the Brown decision and what Goldwater says about the Brown decision in conscious for in uh, conscious of conservatism I mean it's in, indistinguishable yeah. you know it's the classic it's the classic conservative thing that that the court doesn't have jurisdiction over over education education mm-hmm. is a local issue. And that it's assumed too much authority and all the rest. And that's exactly what Thurman says. It's not like in his, in his book in 68, Thurman's saying, you know, we got to keep black and white school children apart because black children aren't equal to white children. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it, it, Thurman never says that, you hmm. know. Um, and so it, it's a great little example of how, Thur- you know, Goldwater needs Thurman in 1960. In 1962, South Carolina Republicans need him. Southern Republicans need him because Thurman is the white whale. Thurman is that dissident white uh, Southern Democrat who's going to who who represents those voters that re- that Republicans need mm-hmm. if they're going to take conservative Republicans need if they're going to take over the national party and they're going to run a national candidate. But in 1968, very different scene. Hmm. Goldwater. Uh, is running for re-election uh, in Arizona. He'd been out of office for for uh, four years. He has always, throughout his career, had the battle uh, accusations that he's an extremist mm-hmm. and that his, he's in cahoots with the extremists. And it would do him no favors in 1968 when he's running against a Democratic candidate to endorse and write a foreword for a book for Strom Thurmond, the South's biggest segregationist, right? Mm-hmm. And the and the um, and that old racist right wing wacko. So, hmm. you know, it's it's interesting how you know, uh, you know, Goldwater needs him in the early sixties. He he doesn't need him. He needs to distance himself by the late sixties. Just that's that's the story. This kind of uneasy place that uh, it's a major theme of the book is this kind of uneasy place that Thurman has. Um, they both need him, and yet they're always trying to distance themselves from him too at different at different times. Yeah, I thought that was um, really interesting because I'd always. You know, I, I guess I never realized that um, how the rest, like Dick Russell and the rest of the Southern, uh, you know, Democratic senators, how little regard they held for Thurman, and you know that he was always on the outside, sort of looking in. I mean, that that was is is that right? Well, I think I would say it a little bit differently in sure. that um, he had. Thurman's decision, it was a rash decision, but in 48, his decision to, to, to lead the Dixiecrat cause mm-hmm. really burned bridges for him that, that in a way that would shape the rest of his career and the kinds of, of options that were open to him. It burned the bridge with the establishment Democratic Party in South Carolina. And, and that then uh, kind of alienated him alienated him from other kind of establishment Southern Democrats who ran the Senate, who were the power brokers, mm-hmm. right, in the Southern caucus that had so much power through um, 
through the 1950s, really until it was finally broken in 1964 when it broke the filibuster that passed the 64 Civil Rights Act. But you know, R- Richard Russell was was the quintessential establishment Southern Democrat official. I mean, he was the head of the Southern Caucus, this very well respected person. But but Russell was was um, skeptical of Thurman, and Russell just he um, he was uh, he knew that Thurman was uh, had a huge uh, ambitious streak, and that he was going to out to make a name for himself. And he was. When Thurman got into the Senate, he came in in 1955, late 1954. They appointed him early. But when he came in, Thurman had made this – he had won on this right-end candidacy, unprecedented, right? He was mm-hmm. a right-end candidate. Um, and that's a whole other story that, that, that made him an enemy to the establishment Democratic Party in South Carolina. But he comes into the Senate – and he has to run again in 1956. He's pledged to the South Carolina voters that he's going to um, put the vote, put the race back into the Democratic Party in 19 in Democratic Party primary in South Carolina in 56. So he's going to have to run 56, and then he has to run again in 60 because that by that time the seat would be up again. Mm-hmm. So so Strom Thurmond actually had to run three times for the U.S. Senate in the first six years. Yeah. And so, as I say in the book, it makes a man who's normally obsessed with his political, you know, fortunes even more so. You know? <laughs> I mean, this this kind of unprecedented uh, series of events in which he has to run, and he's convinced that everyone that that the the establishment Democrats uh, back in South Carolina are going to put somebody up against him and try to defeat him, and so he's running hard. Uh, and, and so he doesn't go through this period where a lot of senators do, where you kind of lay low for a while mm-hmm. and learn the ropes and you know ease your way into things. And that's certainly the way it would have been in the Southern Caucus, you know, where all those guys had been there for years and years. And you got to be deferential and respectful and know who, know where you are and who to kowtow to and who not to. Well, that wasn't in Thurman's makeup anyway. I mean, he wasn't going to be doing that kind of thing. It just wasn't in his personality. But he really wasn't going to be doing it, given the circumstances hmm. in which he was going to have to be running again and again. And so he goes, what does he do? He goes in and, and, and leads the effort for the Southern Manifesto, mm-hmm. which, um, which the other Southerners are kind of uneasy about. Basically, Thurman's trying to take this kind of grassroots movement out there across the South that's interested in these old, antiquated, musty notions of interposition and nullification and he wants to, and all these state legislatures have been passing these nullification interposition uh, resolutions. And Thurman says, "Hey, we should do this in the Senate too." And 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 this is no, and and you know Richard Russell would just have no interest in this at all. But he he waters that down. Um, yeah, I and found then, that particularly fascinating. How yeah. the Southern Democratic establishment wanted nothing to do with the uh, Southern Manifesto. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but that oh, I, yeah. no, I found no, that that's just. Really interesting. Well, Richard Russell just thought it would it would have been it would have done nothing for them. It just would have stirred up the liberals. It was just totally a, a kind of a symbolic thing that uh, Russell was really worried about. Um, you know, uh, federal civil rights legislation being passed and having to, uh, and losing the filibuster because you know throughout this period, from the 40s and 50s. Uh, the Senate, it was constant threat for the Southerners that the Senate was going to revise the um, the filibuster rules mm-hmm. to make it easier to break a filibuster, 
And Richard Russell, who knew the score, knew that once that happened, the game was up. And in fact, it had become so so precarious for them that they couldn't even really follow filibuster. You know, by 1957, mm. that's the the great compromise that that Russell makes is that he avoids the filibuster because to use the filibuster to to resist it was was simply going to invite a larger onslaught in which they would, in which uh, liberals would would be able to probably to amass the votes to revise the filibuster rule, hmm. and and then the game would be up. So that's what LBJ helps him do in '57. Helps Russell do, is as majority leader LBJ helps uh, Russell uh, dilute the '57 le- legislation, reduce it just to a voting rights measure, and then a really weak weak voting rights measure at that. And they pass that, and symbolically it's important, right? It's the first civil rights legislation passed since Reconstruction, but immediately civil rights forced. And they knew it beforehand. It wouldn't, it wouldn't you know, give any real protections for the vote in the South. And that's why you had the 60 legislation, ultimately why you had the legislation in 64. You needed this legislation in 64 and 65. But yeah, I think they, uh, the Southern uh, power brokers, they were leery of Thurman. Because they thought that he was a grandstander, mm-hmm. that he was only interested in himself, and that he he would do, and that he was unreliable, erratic, that he was going to do whatever he needed to advance his own interest, and that he wasn't going to be a team player. And of course, they were exactly right in the '57, you know, uh, on a one-man filibuster, where he basically went behind their backs. I mean, he says he didn't, but he <laughs> did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is, you know, as someone is, I'm working on a biography of, of someone that I admire. This is a difficult biography because I was, I was, I was reading it and getting a sense of Thurman as this obsessed politician. I kind of thought of him as LBJ without the charm. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure. <laughs> Can you tell, tell us a little bit about writing a biography about somebody who, you know, it, it's difficult to like. Yeah. Well, he, he was charmless and humorless. In that period, in his early years in the Senate, certainly from 55 through um, really through the early 70s or so, um, where he's really – that's the most fascinating part of his career too because yeah. it's when he's most alienated from both parties. He's, and he's this independent operator trying to carve out this space in national politics, and that's when he's uh, – uh, so he's really kind of out there on his own in many ways, and um, but he is, you know, there are different moments. I mean, the Youngstrop Thurman is, a, is has his charms. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, he starts moonlight literacy classes for African Americans in Edgefield County. Mm-hmm. Young, a young kind of progress minded, very ambitious young man, um, uh, ardent New Dealer in the 1930s. Um, when, when the, in the one term he serves in the um, in the, in the legislature, um, World War II hero. I mm-hmm. mean, absolutely un, undisputed. Chest full of decorations that he had when he ended World War II. Volunteered as a 40-year-old to uh, crash, later crash land a glider behind German lines on D-Day, mm-hmm. um, and then they fought their way out. Um, just a remarkable, remarkable military record. Um, and then a very this very complicated figure by the end of his life, you know, one, someone who did. I mean, he did charm people by the end of his life, by yeah. the 80s and 90s, when he became this kind of, uh, you know, odd ball kind of senator in jogging shorts, and then later, you know, this kind of lecherous 
uh, liver spotted old man <laughs> in the nineties. You know, he's just there's so many different iterations. There's not like there's a thin Elvis and a fat Elvis with Strom Thurmond. You know, there are just about 10 or 12 different Strom Thurmonds yeah. over the course of his 100-year life. But I was just always, I mean, he's just fascinating uh, as a figure for all of his his uh, chameleon-like qualities, his, his uh, ability to reinvent himself at different moments, and his just unending his just tireless dedication to his own political interests. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's just fascinating. Yeah. So, I mean, what, one thing I really liked about your book, I mean, and I, I think I've mentioned this before, but I think it bears repeating and maybe just talk a little bit about it is, it is, is, is look, Strom Thurmond didn't, didn't come to conservatism by way of bigotry. Right, he okay. Shut fine. He's a bigot. Okay, but he's yeah. he's he was always a conservative. Okay, and so what does that tell us about about the larger story of realignment? And you know, the typical narrative is okay. Yes, voting rights revolution, civil rights re- uh, revolution. South becomes conservative, but it seems mm-hmm. that through Thurmond. You know, is there something more there as the South is becoming less sort of some sort of economic colony of the North that conservatives are able to compete on, on a more equal footing? I mean, could you just talk about that? Yeah, I was trying to understand Thurman's bigotry alongside and how it intersects with these other issues that are important, as I, I say in the book, in kind of Sunbelt conservatism. Mm-hmm. And I do think I think I think I would agree with what you say there that Thurman comes to conservatism from you know I mean he's he you know he's he's talking about states' rights he's talking about the rights of states relative to the federal government in 1948 now he's doing that in the context of where he's leading this this completely racist third party movement but that's his struggle right is to make it about political ideology and not about racism and he mm-hmm. failed miserably There's, yeah. that's, that race was always about the the vehement opposition that had been provoked in the South by by Truman's uh, civil rights policy. So he tries and fails in 1948. But over the course of the 1950s, this really interesting shift happens in his uh, labor and business politics. He had been this labor advocate in the 1930s when he was a New Deal Democrat. And then he starts to see when he's governor – how there's this important new entity in Southern politics, right? That, that the, the, what the people that used to be just be kind of easily dismissed as the mill owners, you know, mm-hmm. those kind of rich Republicans who were on the margins of politics in the South. There's a whole new emphasis now coming from all the governor's offices across the South on economic development. It's the catchword, right? Yeah. Of the post-World War II South. Every governor is racing now. To, to be the best salesman for their state and bring in and pass right to work laws and bring mm. in outside industry. And in the doing that, they're going to corporate boardrooms up in the north. Mm. So Thurman goes up to DuPont in 1950. And those folks in DuPont, they don't think of Strom Thurman as just this crazy old southern segregationist. He comes into the corporate boardroom at, at DuPont and, um, and is there with a guy like um, – uh, like Charles Daniel. Charles Daniel was uh, the head of Daniel Construction, which in the early by the early 1960s would be one of the biggest construction corporations in the country. One ahead of Bechtel. Hmm. I mean, the top ten. It was a. It was right there alongside Bechtel and Brown and Root in terms of its size and the amount of money it was making. 
uh, Charles Daniel was building uh, uh, industrial plants all across the southeast for people like Roger Milliken, mm-hmm. the textile magnate, who, who uh, the textile family, who was a huge figure in Republican and right-wing funding, Republican and right-wing causes. He's a big money man behind Goldwater's campaign in 1964. And, um, and Thurman goes up there as governor, and, and they don't see him as a crazy Southern segregationist. They see him as a former presidential candidate who ran against Harry Truman and had all these criticisms against Harry Truman. Thurman would start those meetings. Uh, Charles Daniel tells in his memoir about how Thurman would start the, that meeting, you know, pitching relocation sites in South Carolina by saying, by looking around the room, he says, I think there's more brains around this table than there is in all of Harry Truman's cabinet, <laughs> you know, and that kind of thing. You know, the idea that, um, you know, that they were, that they were, they, they understood, they were simpatico in, the, in their, in their rejection of, of Harry Truman and the liberals who were running the Democratic Party. <laughs> so, so Thurman, you know, that issue of, of anti-union politics and pro-business politics that Thurman embraces over the course of the 1950s so that by the 1960s he's as big a foe of labor unions as he is of civil rights organizations. Hmm. Um, the embrace of, of a hard right, uh, what we would call today a belief in American exceptionalism abroad, but yeah. a hard right anti-communist position, which Thurman embraced it comes directly out of his military experience. He had been a, trained in the military as a cadet at Clemson University in the 20s, and he had been involved in the reserves always. And he was a hero of World War II, and he had become the Reserve Officers Association national president when he left the governorship in the early 1950s before he became a, a senator. So he was very frustrated by the late 50s with what he felt like was the internationalist kind of um, – presence, liberal uh, international presence in the, in the National Democratic Party that was going to give away the game uh, internationally to the communists. And he was you know, a big fan of, of Douglas MacArthur and thought that they'd given away the game in Korea and didn't want it to happen in Vietnam. So, all, you know, it's not like Thurman, uh, it, it, you know, issues of anti-union politics, issues of anti-communism. Um, he's also, you know, putting together... Uh, working with religious conservatives in the South uh, in a way, decades, we wouldn't call them the religious right in the 1950s and 60s. That mm-hmm. term, to- uh, term wasn't coined until the 70s, but that's what it was, that's what it was when Strom Thurmond is, is, is working with those religious conservatives who would eventually uh, come to play such an important role in, in conservative politics. So all of that, Thurman is involved in all of those issues, and we have no sense of that in our previous histories of Thurman, how, how deeply um, involved he was in all of these kinds of issues, and how Thurman saw himself as, as these were the issues that, you know, that he was a conservative, that he, yeah. although he wouldn't use that term. He certainly wouldn't use that term in 1948. That term was, in, was death in, hmm. in Southern politics in 1948. Nobody would have used that term. You would have called yourself a states' rights Democrat, hmm. a Jacksonian Democrat, you know. In fact, you know, there's early in, in, in uh, Barry Goldwater's career, he didn't even use the term, or he was careful about using it. He'd call himself a Jacksonian Democrat. Uh, Ellie Shermer's book on, on Goldwater, she talks about, about the, that language and, and the, the difficulty of that term, conservative, even as late as the, as the, um, the 1950s. You know, for, for politicians who are in the realm, you know, maybe people, you know, surely, sure, William F. Buckley would have been called sure. himself a conservative. William F. ran for political office. Well, he did. He ran for mayor. I take that back. 
He didn't win it though. Sure. But um, but you know, I mean, conservatives and intellectuals can call themselves conservatives, but politicians, you got to be careful about that thing. Yeah. You know. So so that's Thurman. Uh, so yeah, I think I think that's right. Thurman was involved in all of those issues in important ways that we have we have just forgotten all about. Yeah, I mean, this is what I really I, reading your book, and again, I know historians aren't we're not supposed to think anecdotally. Um, but we still do, or at least I do. Yeah. And I read yeah. this, and I and I and I and I, you know, I remember my my grandfather talking about voting for what he would he would always use Fielding Wright first because he was the Mississippian, but voting mm-hmm. for Thurman and Fielding Wright. But I always got a sense of my family, you know, that grew up voting Republican, um, that there was more to their conservatism than just bigotry. Right. I mean, the bigotry was absolutely there. I mean, they're very much people of their time. But I really think you did a night, you know, sort of Strom Thurmond being kind of a stand in for conservative white Southerners of the mid century and, you know, a more complicated picture. Um, and, and, you know, I, I really this is and, it, and it's it's a fun read, too. I mean, you, you kind of okay. you know, it's really something um, and urge all our listeners to go out and buy this. Thank you. Yeah, I have a that. one last question, and I know you just finished this book, but um, what is what is your next project? <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, did, I did just finish. It's hard to kind of get my head around doing something different, um, but I do. I have been thinking about some other things. I've got two ideas um, that are that are really interesting to me. I probably will will move forward with both of them until I figure out what I which one I want to focus my attention on. But um, one is I have a long-standing interest in Atticus Finch, the hero of To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, huh. And I've just long been fascinated by him and fascinated by the fascination with with, um, hmm. with Atticus Finch. And I'd like to write a book about um, about Atticus in that novel and its enduring kind of influence hmm. as a way for understanding kind of American the morality on race and racial hmm. issues. You know, yeah. Atticus is just this unimpeachable hero. You know, yeah, yeah. He uh, voted the the number the great Hollywood movie hero of the 20th century, the number one hmm. best, you know, greatest hero in the movies. And um, and that no, that novel is is read and taught so often to school children. You know, it becomes like the the moral the morality tale that we tell about race relations. Yeah. In this country, and so, um, so I'd like to to think about Atticus Finch and what is it that we love so much about Atticus Finch? What are the qualities that, and, and, and then try to relate that to kind of, well, he's a Southern liberal, he's mm-hmm. a Stoic, he's a um, he's a father. Um, it's just an interest, just a fascinating figure. So I don't know exactly what shape that would take, but yeah. something I'm, I'm I'm turning around in my mind. And then the other thing is I want to write a book about the civil rights era and, and the civil rights struggle that can really uh, bring home to readers uh, the degree to which for white and black Southerners both, the civil rights movement represented both a, the civil rights struggle represented both a uh, a political, it was a political crisis, but it was also a kind of spiritual crisis for mm. so many people. And, um, and it was a time really when their belief in and the their world, the way they understood the world, just really uh, uh, there, there's, there's this feeling that so much was at stake. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and the way they saw the world, and the way they understood themselves, and the way they understood everything. Um, and um, I don't know exactly 
how to do that. Although I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm toying around with some ideas about how to do that in a way that you could do it in a narrative history, that you could tell a story, a history mm-hmm. um, that would capture those themes. And, it, and one of the things that interests to me uh, that, that may way, be a way to do that is to look at those, uh, you know, when they were debating the civil rights movement, civil rights uh, bill in 1964, there were these seminarians, uh, Jewish seminarians, Protestants, Catholics, who got together on the mall in Washington and held um, prayer vigil, 24-hour prayer vigils continuously on this, you know, there by the Lincoln Memorial until the bill was passed. And partly this interest comes out of when I was researching my first book, I was going through the papers of John Stennis, the senator hmm. from Mississippi. Yeah. And he wrote a memo to file. He was great about doing this, where he just reflect on things. Hmm. And, um, and his memo to files was going to basically, it was all kind of like, why did we lose the fight? Why did we, they were, were they able to get cloture, vote for cloture on the um, 64 legislation? And he goes through the list of things, and he said, and really one of the most profound things were those prayer vigils. Hmm. They just really had a huge impact in swaying public opinion. Hmm. And I always thought, wow, that's really something for him to say. Yeah. And I, I wanted to find out more about them. And um, and I think I want to I want to kind of I think there's an interesting just story to be told about those vigils, uh, and that could be a frame for. Uh, doing a larger history about the passage of that bill and um, and and the religious and the racial um, arguments, divisions, debates that were roiling the country at that moment, and that you know, and that had been roiling the country for decades before, and that continued that we continue to live with today. Wow, that sounds like a great book. It seems like that that there you know the veritable hole in the literature really is there, and that you know a, a region that is you know, as religious as the South really deserves yeah. that sort of treatment. That uh, that sounds like a really interesting book. I I, I vote for the second, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. this is not a democracy. Well, that's, that's how we decide these things, right? <laughs> you, just, you tell your ideas to people, you know, over beers at a bar, and the ones that people kind of light up around you end up writing that yeah. one. Well, you, that's a, you know, it's your, it's your sounding board. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I've been, you know, reading your work for a few years now and um you know and i was so delighted to find out that you're a mississippian um because i you know i i know northerners can do our history quite well um but um it's it's always good i think at least when uh somebody from the region i I just think there is something about the south um you know that it, it does take sometimes an insider to i know to to um well I don't know. Maybe a northerner could have done the Strom Thurmond biography in the same way, but I, I really this—it's a really fine book. It really right. is. Well, thank, I appreciate that, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. It, there there are advantages and disadvantages to be an insider or an outsider, but yeah, um, yeah there are relative merits to both. And yeah. there have been great northerners uh, who have written wonderfully sure. about the South and people Absolutely. from all over the world, obviously. But, yeah. Well, thank yeah. you for your time, um, and uh, we—I appreciate it. Okay. Yeah, thank and, uh, you. It's look- been a pleasure talking with you. Okay, have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you've enjoyed uh, my interview and uh, conversation with uh, Joe Crispina. hope it uh, makes you want to go out and buy what really is a fine book, Strom Thurmond's America. And um, I hope you um, subscribe to this podcast and, um, you know, 
talk about it on Facebook and spread the word. Um, I will see you next week. Thank you.